Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. And welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In a recent tweet, Robert Wachter, the chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, wrote that in about three weeks, we're going to have real vaccine doses and real people who want their shots. Officials will have to make difficult choices and provide clear guidance on who should receive a coronavirus early on. Folks need to be able to trust the process, Wachter tweeted. And Dr. Wachter joins us now to share a preview of how UCSF and the Bay Area could handle early shipments of a vaccine. And welcome back to Forum, Dr. Wachter. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Well, we have another big holiday surge, unfortunately, of the virus and tighter restrictions are being put in place in every uh, county within the Bay Area except uh, for Marin is purple. Let's first talk about hospitals. And uh, is there an expectation that they're going to be overwhelmed? What do you see? Well, they are already overwhelmed in many parts of the country. They're not yet in the Bay Area, but the trends are uh, the trends are worrisome. At UCSF today, we have about 30 COVID patients, which doesn't really tax us in terms of our capacity. It's about a 600-bed hospital. Uh, but you know, I talk to colleagues in the Midwest, and they have 200 or 300 COVID patients. And uh, at UCSF, a couple of weeks ago, we were we were eight or 10 patients. So we've gone from eight or 10 to about 30. And if that's as high as we get, we'll be fine. But, uh, you know, we're heading north and heading in the wrong direction. And that cases in the hospital today reflect what happened two or three weeks ago. They do not reflect what happened in Thanksgiving. So we could be uh, in a world of hurt in the next few weeks. All that hurt and all that grim news notwithstanding, there still is at least good news on the horizon with respect to vaccines. And I'm interested in finding out your thoughts about well, the timing, first of all, but also the distribution of vaccines. Um, at this point, a lot of that's up in the air, but uh, we've got announcements of FDA trials, uh, excuse me, going on earlier in terms of authorization of the trials, and uh, things are looking pretty promising. Well, let's start with the big picture, which is a month ago, we didn't know for sure that we would get a vaccine that worked. I mean, we've been working on an HIV vaccine for 30 years. We don't have one. And so... Uh, November really will go back, go down in history as a month of uh, a remarkable month in the history of science, that now we have uh, three vaccines that we know work, uh, two of them uh, remarkably effective, the AstraZeneca a little bit less so, 
but the news on the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are, are breathtaking, really beyond anything any of us had anticipated. Uh, 95% effective in preventing cases uh, overall, uh, but even more impressively, the Moderna uh, news that came out this morning, in their trial, there were 30 severe cases, 30 patients that were quite sick, had to go to the hospital or the ICU or had a very low oxygen. All of them, all 30 were in patients that, or in people that got the placebo. Zero of them were in people that got the vaccine. So these are uh, breathtakingly effective. And I think those of us in the healthcare business are, are giddy about this. But now we start the work of trying to get them manufactured, distributed, and sorting out who gets it first, because there will not be enough vaccine to go around uh, until probably the middle part of next year. So we have some complicated decisions and logistics to work out in the next month or two. And we uh, have to comment, though, as you just did on the remarkable speed of all this, it was taking about typically five years or even 10 to 15 years to get a vaccine. And now we have this vaccine. Uh, but let's also talk about what we don't know with the vaccine, because uh, before we talk about manufacture and distribution, uh, there's still, well, for example, a big uncertainty about how long the vaccine can last. And the vaccine is mainly sort of uh, targeting symptoms to a great degree. There's, it's been pointed out by a number of people that um, does it really help us understand uh, or avert infections, uh, particularly in asymptomatic people? And I, I think people's expectations are that this is some kind of panacea. They have to see the bigger picture, don't they? Yes, but I guess I would, this is one where the glass is more than half full. You know, here's the things we know. We know that the vaccine uh, prevents infection, meaning prevents symptomatic COVID uh, uh, 95% of the time. So 19 out of 20 cases are prevented. We know just as importantly, as I said, that it also prevents severe cases. So it's if all it did was prevent you from having a little bit of a fever and a cough, but if you did get sick, you would get deathly ill. That would be bad. But we now know that it also uh, is incredibly effective in preventing people from getting very sick and, and, and almost certainly from dying. What we don't know for sure is how long it will last. We care about that. But if it turns out you need to get a booster in a year or two, that's not the worst thing in the universe. And we don't know for 100 percent sure that it prevents you from getting infected, meaning you're carrying the virus in your in your mouth or nose and potentially giving it to someone else. That's going to be important because that may ultimately determine whether we have to still take some precautions like wearing masks. But uh, overall, you know, the news that we now have a vaccine that is incredibly safe, as it turns out, um, has some moderate side effects that will last for a day and will bring the number of infections and severe infections down to close to zero is unbelievably good news. And when we get it in maybe 70% of people in the United States, that is when we will reach herd immunity in the, in the right way. You don't want to reach it by people getting sick and dying. You want to reach it through a vaccine. And if you do the math in terms of distribution and manufacturing, we should be able to get there probably by the end of the summer. So it's pretty amazing. But even can foresee distributing it as early as, uh, say, around December 21st, is what I've heard with Moderna now getting FDA, applying for FDA approval. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so they, you know, one of the things the federal government, the federal government did a lot of things right on this one. They did a lot of things wrong in the overall management of COVID, but on this one, they got it right. And one of the things they did was basically fund the manufacturing and distribution of vaccine even before we knew for sure that they would work. And that's kind of gutsy because if it turned out they didn't work and they had to 
tossed them in the Boston Harbor, we would have been saying, you know, who, 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 who did that? You know, that was what a terrible mistake. But, but, but they were betting on science. They were betting that the vaccines would work and be safe. And that means there are millions of doses ready to go the day the FDA says it's okay to begin distributing it. And so, you know, the FDA is meeting on December 10th. It's likely we'll have a decision within a few days after that. And we will probably have vaccine ready for uh, to begin injecting into real people's shoulders by the middle of, uh, of December, which is just uh, just unbelievable. We should also mention, though, that Governor Newsom has said the funding is inadequate and he's uh, on record as saying the 16 million that's going to be spent, 10 for planning and six for staffing needs to be substantially raised, uh, more federal funding is being sought, obviously. We're talking with Dr. Bob Wachter, and uh, he's chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. And if you'd like to join us with any questions talking about vaccines, we want to hear from you. You can call us now at our toll-free number, and the number to call is 866-733-6786. That number, again, for your involvement in the program with anything you want to say or ask, 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. So let's talk about distribution. Uh, we got three phases likely with distribution. First, healthcare workers who work directly with COVID-19 patients, followed by those who are at risk for more severe complications for the virus and other essential workers. But from there, we go to the second phase, the third phase. Maybe you can outline this for us, Bob. Well, the first phase is, people are talking about the first phase, but the first phase is complicated. It's, it's often divided into phase 1A, 1B, and 1C. And Michael, I don't think we know the order yet. There have been recommendations made by a prestigious national group, the National Academy of Medicine in October, uh, that, that had the first group be, uh, be healthcare workers, people with direct exposure to patients, the next group being people over 65 or with pre-existing conditions. But then the, 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 what really matters is what an advisory group to the Centers for Disease Control says. And it looks like uh, the order is tilting toward the first group being healthcare workers, the second group likely being essential workers. Those are people that it's probably going to include teachers, firefighters, policemen and women, um, uh, people who work in, in the food delivery business and those sort of things. And then the third group or phase 1C uh, being people over 65 and, uh, and people with pre-existing conditions. The exception there is probably going to be people over 65 who live in nursing homes and other congregate settings, which have had a uh, remarkably high mortality rate. They may go very early, but the devil's in the details. We don't know uh, the order yet, and um, and the numbers get a little daunting. So if you say, uh, you know, well, we want all those. Actually, you know, what we really want is all of those groups to go uh, to get their vaccine as quickly as possible. But when you do the math, the number of healthcare workers in the United States is about 20 million. The number of essential workers is close to 90 million. The number of people over 65, 50 million. And the number of people with pre-existing conditions, 150 million. When you add up those groups, you get to 200 million or so people. The amount of vaccine we'll have uh, by the end of December is probably about enough for 20 million people. I know it's a lot of numbers, but the, the main point is and probably have another 25 million uh, people who can get their vaccine in January. So the amount of vaccine that's available is going to force some tough prioritization decisions. We shouldn't go too crazy over this because eventually there will be enough vaccine for everybody. 
And when you look at the time that it takes to manufacture it and the speed with which they're ramping up, we're probably going to get through all of those groups, healthcare workers, essential workers, people over 65, people with pre-existing conditions by early spring. But it, you know, we're talking about when you look at the number of cases, hospitalizations and deaths, it does make a difference whether you got your shot in or your shots in December and January or March and April. And that's what we're going to be debating for the next week or two. And there's also some debate uh, that's really going on about how much race should be considered, how much income and health care access and those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's been exposed by COVID, although it's been well known in, in, in every part of healthcare where you look, is that there are major disparities in the people and the risk of people for the disease and how they do. And in COVID, it's become quite clear, including in San Francisco, which has had the best experience with COVID of any major city in the country, sort of the least number of deaths uh, by far. But even in San Francisco, you see uh, rates of, of, of COVID in the Mission District and in other more diverse areas being far higher than in, 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 in uh, less diverse areas and in more affluent areas. And so um, there, there certainly is a case to be made to be sure that people who are the most vulnerable and most at risk get their vaccines early. And whether you do that by, uh, by having race be a category or you do it by saying the reason, or at least a big part of the reason that, for example, in San Francisco, uh, Latinx uh, populations have higher risk is they are more likely to be essential workers. They're more likely to work in the store or be police uh, men and women or firefighters or, or, or teachers uh, and do it and, and make sure you're hitting the diverse populations by virtue of making sure you're getting essential workers, people who can't stay at home and spend their day on Zoom and watch Netflix at night. Um, those are two different ways of doing it. My guess is there will not be a race category by, of prioritization, which would create, create its own challenges, but rather the CDC committee will look very carefully at, at, the, uh, at the essential worker category and who's in nursing homes and, and who has pre-existing conditions and try to be sure that those groups are being prioritized. And by doing that, to be sure that we're making sure that, uh, that diverse populations and poorer people are getting their vaccines early. And let me bring a caller on with us. Amy is our first caller. Amy, you're on the air. Welcome. Um, hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm a nurse. I'm 66 years old, and I work in like an outpatient um, ambulatory care setting with post-op and pre-op. Um, I'm wondering if because of I just so I don't work directly with COVID patients, but I'm wondering due to my age, because I'm thinking of retiring because of COVID, um, would I possibly be on the in the first kind of bunch of people getting the, the, the vaccine? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Uh, it, it's not. Okay, it, I'll it's take it off the air. Not, yeah, it's probably not going to be that you get multiple points. So you're a nurse and you're over 65. It may be that if healthcare workers are first, even that group has to get parsed a little bit because there isn't enough for all healthcare workers on day one to those that are having more direct contact with patients. There are plenty of doctors, for example, that are doing 100% telemedicine these days. There's no special reason that they should get their vaccines early. Uh, so my guess is the fact that you're a nurse and seeing patients. It's not that you're the fact that you're not seeing known COVID patients probably is not that important. The fact that you're out there seeing patients means that we want you to be vaccinated so that you don't get sick. And you know the, the principle here is not that healthcare workers have any more value than anybody else. The principle is the same as telling you know the adult to put the oxygen mask on in the airplane before the kids. You want the 
the, the, the healthcare workers to be healthy and not sick if there's a huge surge. To, uh, last week, it was reported at the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic, both of them had a thousand doctors and nurses out because of COVID. And we don't have that yet at UCSF. We're hoping it doesn't happen. But if it happens, it markedly limits our ability to take care of our community. And so that's the principle for healthcare workers, not necessarily you're seeing COVID patients, but you're able to if we needed you to. And so I think healthcare workers are going to be very uh, toward the front of the line if they're seeing any patients at all. And on the other side of things, uh, what about the, uh, some 40% who say they won't take the vaccine? I don't believe it, Michael. I, frankly, I, you know, first of all, that number was 50% a couple of months ago. The latest survey would, was about 40%, but that was before the news of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine came out. I think if you asked me two months ago, would I take a vaccine? I would have said, I don't know. I, you know, I need to see the data, how good it is, how safe it appears, whether the FDA appears to have been politicized or is back to its legitimate and traditional role of being a, a strong evidence-based regulator. I think when I look at it today, the vaccines are massively effective. They appear to be completely safe. Um, they have been tested now in tens of thousands of people. The FDA, to its credit, has snapped back into uh, its normal position. It's, it's sort of shaken off all of the political uh, shenanigans that, that we're seeing a few months ago. And so today, if you ask me that question, I would say I want to be first in line. And so I think that and, it, and it's not like, you know, for vaccines for childhood diseases, you see issues of vaccine deniers and anti-vaxxers and all that kind of stuff. But these are diseases that many people have never seen before, whereas COVID every day you know people that got it. You see on the news people dying. You see hospitals overwhelmed and people in ICUs and morgues outside, refrigerated morgues outside buildings. I think it's going to be different. I don't think we'll get 100%, but I think we're going to get uh, 80 or so percent of people vaccinated. And when we get to numbers like that, that will be the end of this pandemic. And let me bring Seth on. Seth, thank you for waiting. You're on. Oh, hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Hi, I'm, uh, yeah, my name is Seth. I'm a, I'm a college student. And my question was, um, I was just curious, is there an estimated um, kind of uh, timeline uh, regarding after, you know, after the first responders and whoever the primary people get the vaccines, when the general public may be able to get them? Yeah, thank you, Seth. It's, it's a good question. And the best way to estimate it is that we probably are going to have be able to vaccinate 20 million people by the end of 2020 and probably two or 300 million people in the United States by the end of 2021. So if you do the math, that gets us to uh, uh, finishing those three groups, healthcare workers, um, essential workers, and people over 65 with pre-existing conditions. You're sort of done with those by the summer. And that I'm guessing is when it becomes available to everyone, because those three groups get you to almost half of the American population. So if you are a healthy, college student, you're probably looking at the late summer, early fall, which, as I tell people, uh, either seems like a long way away or not so long away. One way to think about it is it's about the same amount of time between now and then as between the beginning of the pandemic and now. So however long that feels, that's probably how long we have till we start vaccinating everybody. Well, I'm cheered by what you say about uh, the, the vaccine news being worth celebrating uh, and maybe by next year getting us close to normal. That's really positive news. But in the meantime, we have to get through what we're going through now. And that's a big challenge. Thank you, Bob Walker. Always good to have you on. Appreciate Thank you, Michael. Thank you for your service.
And thank you, our listeners. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, an hour repeat at 10 to 11 in the evening, another hour of Forum Up Ahead with Scott Schaefer. Stay tuned for that. You can always let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, let me conclude by once again saying, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.